So as I've said, we've been going through the book of James, and we're round and third heading home. Um, I thought that I was done with James chapter 4, because when we last met a couple of weeks ago, we were done with James chapter 4. However, uh, James chapter 4 wasn't done with me. There was something about it that I just could not let go of, and then we left for this missions trip to Gulfport, and I had no idea why God was saying, you got to go back to James 4, you got to go back to James 4. And then after our missions trip to Gulfport, which again, for those of you who don't know, or maybe you forgot, we went down there to take one-on-one discipleship, which for those of you who don't know, it's a ministry in this church we have. It's actually the core ministry of this church that we have, where a believer who's farther along in their walk with Christ sits down with a, a younger believer in Christ, and they go through the Word of God together and help establish them in the fundamentals of the faith how you should walk, how you should grow. And then from there, by the time discipleship finishes, you should have not only somebody who knows more about Jesus and who knows more of the Bible, you should have somebody who is ready, willing, and able to teach somebody else those very same principles and concepts. That's what one-on-one discipleship is. That is really, as you study the book of Acts out and you see what Christ's command was, that is really how churches grow. And as they continue to grow, you eventually get to a point where you grow so much that you're like, okay, we can't just keep growing this monster. We got to start sending other churches out. And you start doing discipleship on a bigger level by discipling other churches to send out more churches. That is the process that is God's only plan to reach the entire world for Christ. The only plan. And that's what we went down to Gulfport to do about, goodness, four weeks ago now, to introduce it church-wide to this church down in Mississippi. And when we got through with it and when we got back, I knew exactly why it was that I could not get away from James chapter 4. And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but there's a certain section of it that, that really was the highlight. It was the main theme of it. If you follow along with me in verse 4, it's these verses here. So on your study sheet, at your six, which is just a phrase, it's a military phrase, or, you know, even law enforcement officials use it as well. Just letting you know, hey, looking behind, your rear sight, if you will, although your rear sight's in front of you, at your six, somebody who's behind you, reviewing where we have been. Verse four, ye adulterers and adulteresses, speaking to a group of believers, speaking to a group of people who have trusted Christ and received him as Lord of their life. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity or division with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We talked last time when we were in here and in this passage that what the world is defined as is found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, where it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not the people that are in the world. It's the world system. It's, it's the lust or the craving for more, for fame and fortune, if you will. And maybe that's not you guys, but maybe you crave to be liked. Maybe you crave reputation. Maybe you crave to be the most popular in the school. Maybe you crave to be the absolute best athlete, and that completely drives your focus and your purpose in absolutely anything and everything that you do. If it's anything that is off of Christ, that's not to say you can't do those things. Of course you can. I like to be liked. 
I like to be liked by people. That's not an, a wrong feeling to have. No, we're talking about when you become friendly with those things, when it becomes your absolute driving force and your driving passion in life, where everything you do is dictated by all of those things rather than letting your life be dictated and ran and controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we talk about. He's saying, don't be friends with the world. And even clarifies a little bit more in verse 5. Do ye think the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? James is basically saying, hey, it is in all of us. It's in us to want those things. It's in us to crave those things, to hunger for them. It's in us. He's like, the Bible warns you of it. It doesn't say it in vain. He's letting you know very, very clearly about it. And if you're in here today and maybe you struggle with being so worldly minded that you've lost your sight on the things that really matter, you don't have a proper picture of where it is that God is taking you, there's hope for you in verse 6. But he giveth more what? Grace is simply to find God's riches at Christ's expense. If you want to write down 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that's chapter 8, verse 9. That verse will give you a perfect definition of what grace is. It says that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. It talks about that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was God in human flesh. He left his throne in heaven, he was rich, and came down here to be with us, the poor. And he died our death. He took our sin, our punishment, our chastisement upon himself in order to make you and I wealthy beyond our means. Not physically with monetary gain. No, no, no. To give us eternal life. There's nothing that compares to that. Wherefore he saith, verse 6, God resisteth the proud, but giveth what? Unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In verse 8, draw nigh. That means close to God. And he will draw nigh to you. If you're feeling as though God isn't close to you, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says. God does not change. If you feel as though you are not close with God or God is distant from you, it's not him that's moved. It's us. But you know what the the fixture is for that? You draw nigh to him and he will move mountains to get close to you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts. And I did not see this ever before until just recently studying for this this week. He says, ye double-minded. What are they double-minded about? In the context of what we just read. Double-minded means you can't make up your mind. One half of your brain is going this way, the other half of your brain is going this way. What's it over in the context of this? Yeah. Part of you wants so close, so much to have such a close and deep and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But at the same time, so much of you want so much to be liked and to be popular and to do things your way and to live your life and do the things you want independent of what God's word says. And there's this battle, this war that happens every single day before which side are we going to go to? Which side's going to get the best of us? Which side's going to lose? Which side's going to win? And this happens every single day for you and I. And he's saying, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. In other words, pick a side. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And so with everything we're going to look at for the rest of tonight, I have just this to say to you. This might sound like review to some of you, and we have covered some of this stuff before. It's going to be presented in a different light. But I'll say this, if you get to the point where you're like, oh, I've heard this before, just take the advice we just read in James 4 and humble yourself. Treat everything on here like it's your first time hearing it. And that goes mostly for our people who have grown up, been here for any length of time. Because in the second thing we're going to look at, the second point in our outline, we need to realign our sights on where we are currently. We just reviewed where we've been. Now we need to realign our sights on where we are currently. We need to line up the rear and front sight in order to get an accurate sight picture of where we're aiming for. So realign our sights. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. And you don't need to hold your place in James 4 anymore. Ephesians just a couple books to your left from where we were. It is a letter to a church, a group of people who believe the Word of God, who have received Christ as Savior, as we'll see here. And Paul's writing to them. And check this out. I don't know if you ever saw this before. Verse 1. He says, And you hath he quickened. Anybody here... <laughs> I guess I would hope everybody's going to say yes. Anybody here cut your nails? Anybody here still have mommy and daddy cut their nails for them? Mine. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. You guys ever cut too too much off? And you're like, yeah, yow. You know what that's called? The quick of the nail. You know what quickened here means in this passage? It means made alive. Yikes, yow. Nothing will let you know that you are alive than cutting too much of your nail off. He says, you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, wherein, remember, who's he speaking to here? A group of believers, Christians, us essentially. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this, what? According to the prince of the power of the air. That's one of the reasons why you don't want to get too attached to this world and the things of this world, because of who actually runs this world system. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Who's he talking about here? Satan. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. Exactly, Satan. Verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the... Huh, the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The Bible is very clear that each and every single one of us are born into this life as sinners. The Bible says in Romans 5.12 that whereas by one man sin entered into the world, that's Adam, and death by sin, because God commanded them, you eat of that fruit of that tree, 
it is sure death for you. But their body didn't die. Their soul didn't die. It was their spirit. It was that part of them that God created in his image to have communion and to communicate and fellowship with God the Father. That is what died instantaneously. And as a result of that, everybody started dying physically as a result of it. As by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So that all have sinned. And that was you and me. The Bible says because of that, not only because of their sin, Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53 that you and I are all like sheep. We have all gone our own way, away from God the Father and the commandments of the Lord. And that, as a result of that, makes us, as he says here in verse 3, children of wrath. Yikes. The wrath of God. If you are in here and you are not a child of God, you have not come to the point where you have trusted Christ as your Savior, the wrath of God is upon you, unfortunately. Not to try to use scare tactics. I just read that. You are children of wrath, the Bible says. But God, verse 4. Two of the most beautiful words compounded together, possibly ever in the Scripture. You know what God did? For all of us children of wrath, he decided instead of, you know what, dishing out the punishment against all of us who are guilty and we've all gone our own way and we deserve that punishment and that chastisement, he decided, son, speaking to Jesus, I'm going to send you. I got a mission for you. It requires you to leave where you're seated right now in heaven and to go down as an ambassador, as a representative for me. And here's what you're going to do. I'm going to take my wrath that I have against all of the disobedient children of the prince and the power of the air, and I'm going to pour out every single drop of it on you. And the son said, I'll go, Dad. I will be an ambassador for you. I will be a representative for you. And I will take their death. I will take their punishment. I will take their hell. And I'll do it upon me because I love them. That's you. He took your punishment. He took your pain. He took your death. That's how much he cares about you. That's what verse 4 says. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. You see, each and every single one of us have to come to that point where we realize that that's what he did for us and that there is no hope for us outside of entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's none. None at all. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's one of the reasons why Jesus can't coexist with Muhammad. That's one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't coexist with Buddha. Because you can't have all of these other ways be right, and Jesus to say, I am the, 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 the only way. It's a contradiction. Can't work that way. We have to, by grace, receive the gift of His Son dying in the place for us. And then, once you do, you know what happens next? Verse 6, because 6 comes after 5. 
that's what happens next. Check this out. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, somebody help me out here, but what tense is the verb made? It's past and... Well, I guess it, would, it is present, but I'm just trying to think how to explain it. Past and present. Can somebody give me an example, though? I had one in my head, but I don't remember what it was. Made you, made you, I have made, whatever. It was a past act, but it still goes with the point I'm trying to make, though. Where does he say that he has placed you and I at this very moment in time? Heavenly places. Now, think about that. That's going to jog your mind for a little bit, but just think about it. It, it. It's past tense. He's talking about the moment, the point in time that you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, but are you... Are any of you, is this real? Is this the matrix? Are any of you in heaven right now? You're right here. Right? Yep. They're here. Yeah, go ahead. Just slap your neighbor. Make sure they're here. <laughs> Danny, Danny Coward. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So you guys get it. We're here. Now here's the thing, guys. Check it out. Check it out. What this verse is telling us is that God is letting us know from His perspective that at the moment you received Christ as your Savior, you trusted upon His shed blood on the cross, not your own good works. You came to Him, not your own way. At that very instant, at that very moment, from God's perspective, you, right now, even though we're here in this room, in 2023, you are seated in heaven right now. That's God's perspective. It's as sure as done. So even though you and I are looking forward to the rapture of the church where God catches us all up and brings us into his presence, or those of us who have trusted Christ and we take our last breath on this earth and we die before the rapture, we're looking forward to being in heaven there. The Bible's letting us know that for all of us who are genuinely saved, we're in heaven as we speak from God's perspective. Now, we may be seated there, but we're walking here. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Just a few pages to your right. You have Ephesians and then Colossians, or Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Chapter 3. Follow along with me in verse 1. Interesting, very similar terminology to Ephesians chapter 2. Talks about us being raised with Christ, raised and seated in heavenly places. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of Colossians says, If ye then be risen with Christ, what? Seek those things which are above. What's above? Birds? Clouds? Planes? No, he'd let you know where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. What's that? A heavenly place. There you go. Verse 2. He says, set your affection. Affection means passion. Your desire. In other words, not on worldly things, 
Set, don't become friends with the world, but set your affection, your passion on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Verse 3, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. You've heard me talk about this before. Your life is no longer your own, Christian, if you've been born again. It's his. Let Christ live his life through you now rather than it being about, I want to live more for him. I want to walk more with him. I want to, I want to live for God more. No, you're dead. Just let Christ live his life through you and everything will be peachy keen. That's the goal. That's what he wants. So on your study sheet, let's put these two passages together. We see in Ephesians that we are seated in heavenly places as citizens of heaven. Right now, Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. And our sights and affection should be set there. It needs to be placed there. It needs to be appointed there. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says very, very simply that the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. The things that aren't seen. We can't see the things that are in heaven right now. But thankfully, we have a Bible that tells us the things that are above. The Bible tells us what things are above in heavenly places that you and I need to set our affections on as citizens of heaven since we're technically already there right now. And first bullet point, he lets us know as you search the scriptures out, you know who's in heaven or what's in heaven? It's the person of God. 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That verse right there tells you that He is in heaven. But here's why we need to set our sight and affection on it. The person of God, because He wants us to love Him. Mark 12, 30 says that, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Christian, can you say that that's true for you right now? That you have set your affection so much on the person of God because He wants you to love Him that you are then seeking and living that out. Christian, is that true? Next, as you continue to search the Scriptures, you'll find the other thing that is in heaven, according to Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, Thy... Word is settled in heaven. The Word of God is there. And we are to set our sights and affection upon it because He wants us to know Him. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Why? For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. You realize how powerful the name of God is? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. It's at the name of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And yet, according to these passages here, God has magnified or just blown up his word above all his name. That's huge. Because God is in the business of wanting His name known to all. And if He wants His name known to all, there has to be some way to get His word out to people. And that's why Psalm 91.14 says, Because He hath set His 
love upon me. Therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. And you won't know his name if you didn't have the word of God. It's through the word of God that we know his name. We ought to set our affection upon the word of God because he wants us to know him. So, Christian, how well are you doing at knowing him? How well are you doing at knowing his book? Third thing, as you search the scriptures that you find is above, is the throne of God. Because... He wants us to worship Him. That's why we need to set our sight and affection upon the throne of God. Do you realize that there's only three accounts of somebody going up into heaven and then coming back down here on the earth? Technically four, Paul, but God told Paul, don't write what you saw. The other three, they were allowed to write what they saw. Three times. One is Ezekiel, one is Isaiah, and the other one is the Apostle John. They got into heaven and they saw the, one of the first things they see that they mention is a glorious throne. And what's happening and taking place around that throne is people worshiping him. I absolutely love, nope. I absolutely love what Revelation 4, 10 to 11 says when John had his trip there. He said, the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and what? Worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. More on that later. And they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, because of what he's done here for you, he is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. Why? For thou hast created all things. Are you a thing? I mean, it's kind of demeaning. I get it. But I mean, are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, that means he's created you. He's created all things. And don't miss this last part. For thy, his pleasure, they are and were created. You know why God made you? Because it made him happy. He loves you. He set his affection upon you. And all he's asking in return for us is to set our affection upon him. And to give him what is owed him. It's this. You want a crystal clear definition of what true worship is? It's these two verses right here. It's living our lives every single day like these four and 20 elders falling down. Falling down before him. And taking everything that we have and casting it before him and saying, this is for you. This me is for you today what will you have me to do for you because I'm here for you not for what I want for you and then you wake up the next day after hopefully you did that and you do the exact same thing again and you say I am gonna live all of today just like this when I want to then say what I want to say against her or when I want to do this sin over here, I'm going to realize that I got up from my position and I'm going to humble myself under the mighty hand of God and resist the devil and he will flee me. And I'm not going to be a friend of the world. 
gonna draw nigh to you, and I know you're gonna draw close to me. That's what he wants from us every single day. That's worship. We are to set our affection on that, because that's the throne. As you look at those other passages, that's where that happens. Next. Fourth thing you find above is the people of God, because he wants us to minister through him. person of God because he wants us to love him. The word of God because he wants us to know him. The throne of God because he wants us to worship him. The people of God because he wants us to minister through him so that there's more people up there in heaven and they can be seated there in heavenly places along with us currently and future tense. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A few passages to your left. Even though we're citizens of heaven and we're to have our sights and our affection, our passion set on those four things, God throws a curveball at us. And I didn't even realize it. It's the exact same curveball that he sent to his son. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look with me in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... You've not trusted in your own works. You came to the truth, the way, and the life and said, Lord, I believe you. You died on the cross for me. I received the gift of salvation. If that's you, you are in Christ. And the Bible says in verse 17, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And those of you in here, you've done that. Man, have things not been new in your life? If not... Maybe examine yourself if you ever got saved to begin with. But are all things not new? Do you not see things differently? Do you not think differently? Man, what a great life the Christian life is. Verse 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and have given to us the ministry? No, 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 no. That's for pastors. The ministry of reconciliation. To wit, we'll get to verse 19 later, but verse 20. We have this ministry? Now then, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Come to Him for salvation. Verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see on your outline there, even though you're seated in heavenly places right now, As citizens of heaven, affectionately focused there, he has sent us to be ambassadors for him, get this, in the world. (laughs) The very same world that James 4.4 warns us we are not to be friends with because it is enmity, it's division with God. We are to be his ambassadors. So get this, here's the picture. Just like God the Father spoke to God the Son, He says the exact same thing to you and me. If you've been raised in Christ, you've been raised in newness of life with Christ. You are seated right now, Christian, at this very moment in time at 7.37 p.m. You are seated in heaven, in heavenly places, if you know him, if you've received Christ as your Savior, and then God the Father comes up to you. Not anybody else in this room, you. And he says, hey... I have a mission for you. I know you're seated here in heaven, heavenly places, because of what I did for you on the cross. But listen, 
I have a mission for you and I need you to go back down to the earth because I want you to be my ambassador for me. I want you to be my representative for me because there's people down there who aren't seated up here yet. And and I'm going to remind you of what I already put in my word, son, daughter, that just like the heroes of the faith before you, you're a stranger and you're a pilgrim on the earth. And I'm going to remind you, son and daughter, as I send you there, that you are a stranger and a pilgrim. So abstain from the lust of the flesh which war against the soul. Don't get caught up in that world because that world is not your home. I'm sending you on my behalf as my ambassador, as my representative. Because the mission is critical. Job's not going to get done without you. You're seated up here. Your affection is here. But I need you to go there. Just don't forget who you represent. Don't forget, you are my ambassador. You are my representative for your country, your home in the heavenly place. Just don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of the picture. But if you do, you're my son and my daughter and I love you. Just humble yourself under my mighty hand. Draw nigh to me, and I'll draw nigh to you. And we start all over again. It's okay. But don't forget, you represent me on this earth, in this world. Just don't get caught up. Remember, that place is not your home. That is your home. Don't lose sight of that. That's what our sight should be each and every single day. And now that we have our sights aligned, the rear and the front, now it gives us a clear sight picture of the target and getting a clear picture of where we're going. Matthew 28, turn over there. It's the very first book of the New Testament. Twenty-eight, last chapter. Verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's funny. Jesus is having the exact same conversation that God the Father just had with each and every single one of us through His Spirit and through His Word. He says in verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He's not saying make sure you baptize people for salvations. No. You need to teach them first. What is it you teach them? Well, as you study out the Bible in the New Testament, you only baptize people who realize their need for a Savior and they call upon Jesus Christ to save them. Not because of any works. And then when they get baptized after that, it's not because they get the Holy Spirit or they get an extra blessing in heaven. No, no, no. They do it because God commanded them to here. It has nothing to do with salvation. It's an act of obedience. Verse 20, after that, he says, okay, now here's what I want you to do. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. You know what Jesus Christ did for three and a half years? The whatsoever I've commanded you. 
He spent three and a half years with 12 far from perfect individuals. And he invested his life into them. And it's called discipleship. These are the last words of Christ. And I'm with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. Amen. When we went down to Gulfport, Mississippi, to take one-on-one discipleship to them, it threw me back to my sophomore, no, freshman year of high school when I wasn't walking with God. I was saved. I came to a point where I needed a Savior, and I called upon Christ to save me, and He did. And I was seated in heavenly places on June 7, 2001. But I spent two years of my Christian life living worldly, being a very good friend of the world. And I remember coming to my, my youth pastor who invested a lot of his life in me. I told him one day, Jay, I need more. I wasn't ready to give up my sin yet, but I knew something had to change. And I didn't know what it was. And I called out to him for something more. And he's like, it's okay. We're going to bring one-on-one discipleship to our youth group really soon. And that was at the start of my sophomore year of high school. To be able to go down to Gulfport, Mississippi, and to take that first-time experience that I had to another youth group who was completely oblivious to it, and to see how hungry they were for it. <sighs> There's this kid named Matthew. We joked that he was Sam Worsler Jr., because he wore nothing but t-shirts, basketball shorts, he was a ginger, and because when we got through practicing the lesson one of discipleship, lesson one which teaches you what salvation is, who God is, and to show them, man, anybody can do this. Matthew said, I can actually share this with my neighbor. Little did we realize that Matthew's neighbor is a 72-year-old old man He was dead serious, though, because he realized, I can do this. I can share my faith with someone else. I have the tool right here. I have the scriptures right here. I have my sights aligned on things above, not on things of the earth. I can do this, and I can change that man. Christ can change that man's life, but he can use me as the vessel to do it. Seeing two girls, Riley and Valeria, who were paired up to practice going through discipleship lessons together. One was a a senior, the other one I believe was a freshman in high school. Two groups of people that never talk to each other. Just look around here. Just kidding, you guys do a pretty good job. Freshmen and seniors, it's an awkward year. Freshmen just figuring out high school, it's all awkward and everything like that. They paired them up, We, we paired them up together. And to see them talk and to have a conversation for what we believe was the very first time. And how Valeria is like, huh, I'm learning so much from you. She even asked a question to Riley, the senior, and Riley was able to give her the answer. And not only did it give confidence to Riley, the discipler, the older one, but it gave confidence to Valeria and also just for her to be like, I know I can go to you for help. Not only that, we saw kids get excited when they realized, wait a second, being daily in the Word is commanded? Yeah, that makes total sense, guys. Why aren't we in our Bibles every single day? Things that we take for granted because we hammer it so much here in this church, 
and to see the light bulb click for them. Man. A clear picture of where we're going. First bullet point on your outline. We must become reacquainted with the principle of making disciples. There's a reason why I have that as your blank. We need to be in the business of making disciples, not simply having disciples assigned to us. Everybody hear me on that? Look, some people are ready to disciple somebody else, but there's just not the people there. And so what do we tend to do? We'll wait until somebody comes available. And yet, you have a great tool to kick off one-on-one discipleship with somebody who does not know Christ found right there in lesson one that you can sit down and go over. And it even gives them a challenge at the end. Do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and be born again and have that, that image, that, that spirit part of you that died, have it be restored because of the grace and the goodness of God and what He did on this cross for your sins? And by faith, you calling out and receiving that gift, you'll be born again and you'll be restored. And God will give you the same mission He gave in 2 Corinthians 5 as an ambassador for Him to reconcile the world unto Him. The tools are right there. Reality is, praise God, we're starting to get a little crowded in here. You imagine, I'm not doing this. You imagine, though, if we made it a stipulation that before you finished one on one discipleship, you had to go out and make your own disciple, otherwise, we weren't passing you. You realize what that would do to this church? You guys notice how it's kind of barren in these walls here? I have a plan in January. I even actually just started the preparation right now to get some new decal, to get some new things decorated, take these stupid flags down that are outdated. And we have other stuff we're going to have in here. I don't know yet. I want to have maybe a library of books that'll be tools for you guys to utilize. Maybe we revitalize the track board over there. Other things I have ideas in my mind. But since we're already kind of barren and looking like we're ready to move, wouldn't it be great if we all just went out tomorrow and sought to make a disciple? To sit down with them one-on-one to open up the Bible and to go through a Bible study together to whereas at the end of it they realize their need for a Savior, what Jesus Christ did to make a way back to God the Father. And then when they come to that point of decision, they realize, Lord, I've not trusted you. I've been trusting my own good works or my good deeds or going to church all my life and just being a good person. And I've not realized that the shed blood of Christ was there because my good works aren't simply enough. And for all of us to go out and find just one disciple tomorrow? Hey, great news. I don't have to decorate this stinking room anymore because we'll probably be moving to the fellowship hall and make that our senior high room. I don't play favorites. I hope you guys know that. I hope you guys have seen that. I try whenever you guys, to give you guys an attaboy or, or things like that, I try to do it one-on-one or individually, a text or something here or there. I'm not big on, man, do you guys see what so-and-so did in front of the class? I, I'm not big on that. 
but just being real with where things are at right now. Not pointing out favorites, nothing like that. Let's just be real. We have a lot of new things that have happened and just been blowing up recently for the great, glorious cause of Jesus Christ, and it's awesome. People have been inviting friends. People have been starting different things and working on things like a prayer chain, a prayer letter. We have a new, brand new prayer sheet in the back. We have boys, guys-led Bible studies. We have a girls-led girl study going on right now. Things like that happening. Question, though, especially to the 17 or so of you seniors that are leaving in just six months because you're in your last hurrah before you graduate. Who's taking your place when you leave? Who's picking up the baton where you seniors are leaving off? And you might be thinking about that in the sense of, well, uh, I guess I'll just give one last charge to the underclassmen. Like I said, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 didn't just happen. Christ spent three and a half years training them to take over. There is some work involved. There is some labor. When he was on the cross, Jesus didn't say to John, Hey, you, uh, guy that stands over here all the time, uh, can you make sure you take care of my mom? Uh, she's your mom now. All right, cool. Peace out. And he didn't go over to Peter and say, Hey, Pete, you show up every now and then to church. You're kind of here, but you're kind of not here. Um, hey, can you do me a big favor? I'm about to go back up to heaven. Can you feed my sheep for me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Cool. Later. Here's the thing, though. He did say that to both of those guys. But he trained them first. You see, what one-on-one -on -one discipleship does, not only does it grow the church and get more people saved and more people seated in heavenly places, it flushes itself out practically to situations like this, so that for those of you guys who are in charge of this or that, or you've been spearheading this target, or you've been doing this thing here, whether big or even just a medium amount or even a small amount, if you're doing something, it doesn't matter. If you're leaving in six months' time, who's taking up the baton when you go? I really hope it's not the first time you thought about this. But if so, shame on me for not bringing it to the attention later, earlier. But this is what God was hitting me with. This is the reason why, before I left for Gulfport, I couldn't get James 4 out of my head. And it's the reason why, after Gulfport, I knew exactly where I needed to go with this. <sighs> Didn't even dawn on me the theme of our book study. The marks of a maturing disciple. That's, that's why... When we're done with the book of James, when we're done with spiritual gifts, more than likely after winter camp, we're going to do a four to five week study on really looking at what the philosophy and the meaning of discipleship is. I don't care if you've been through one-on-one -on -one discipleship and you're discipling somebody else. We all need our sights realigned and we all need the picture to be a little bit more clear of what it is we're aiming at. We must become reacquainted with the principle of making disciples. And not only that, and for the three of you that were in Mexico with me, this will be a review for you. We must evaluate our work in light of the judgment seat of Christ. We don't have time to turn over there. 
I got two other places I want you to turn to too, so I'm going to use those and spare my time wisely for that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it tells each and every single one of us who are ambassadors in here, because you've trusted Christ as your Savior, that one day you are going to give an account to God, not for your sins, and it's not going to determine if you go to heaven or hell. That was decided at the cross in the moment you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's done. Your sins are paid for. Don't worry about that anymore. No. What you as a Christian are going to have to give an account for, though, is your ambassadorship. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm making it one. You're going to give an account for your representation of the king. How well did you do as a Christian, as a disciple here on this earth? And it says, kind of like the 4 and 20 elders in Revelation 4, as we saw, they cast crowns before them. The Bible says that all of our works, God is going to try our works by fire. And not only to see what it is, but what sort it is. And he lists, we are either going to buy our lifestyle and what we've done for Christ. We're either going to give over gold, silver, and precious stones, or we're going to go over wood, hay, and stubble. Again, you're being tried by fire. Three of those will pass the test. The other three will burn up. In other words, it means that maybe you served at VBS, but your heart was just completely atrocious, your heart <laughs> attitude towards it. That's more than likely going to be wood, hay, and stubble. Whereas, you know what? I don't want to talk to that person. They're kind of weird. They give me the heebie-jeebies. They smell. He's a dude, but he smells like perfume. Because somebody here sprayed me with four sprays of it before I got up here to teach. But I'm going to go ahead and talk with them anyways. You know what? Because I'm going to humble myself under the mighty hand of God, and I'm going to draw nigh to Him and just trust that He's going to give me the grace. I'm going to talk to that person. Just love on them, even though they're not like me. That's good, gold, silver, and precious stones. But even more specifically, God breaks it down this way. The gold, silver, and precious stones, here's how it looks at on your outline. Gold is actually a reward for worshiping Jesus as Lord. The reason why is gold is a picture of deity. Gold is a picture of, of just God himself. You can see that in Exodus 25 with just the tabernacle and how it was beautifully looking just like, uh, or just made with all this kind of gold. Gold is a reward for worshiping Jesus as Lord. And we saw that in Revelation 4, 10, 11, what worship meant. I went through that picture. We don't need a, a refresher on that, do we? You realize that in John 4, 23, that Jesus says that that kind of worship in Revelation 4, that's the kind of worship that the Father is seeking after. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you worship Jesus as Lord? as we looked at earlier. Next, silver. Silver is a reward for sharing your faith and leading others to Christ because silver was a picture of redemption in the Bible. I have Leviticus 5.15 on, the, on, the, on the, the paper there. You can check it out later. In the Old Testament, if somebody wanted to purchase and redeem and free a slave, it cost silver. Not gold, not anything else. Silver is a, t is a picture of redemption in the Bible. It's the purchasing of something. Silver as a Christian, is a reward for sharing your faith and leading others to Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 19 talks about that we're not redeemed with such corruptible things as silver, students of Bible study, but with the precious blood of Christ we were redeemed. And lastly, precious stones. You know what precious stones is? It's a reward for making disciples. 
Second to last place we're going to turn, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. All the T's are in the New Testament together. I love this. God just hit me with this this afternoon. I never saw this before. Verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye, church, received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of who? Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You know what that is? That's salvation. Those in Thessalonica, when Paul and the apostles were preaching the word to them, those in Thessalonica, they received the message and they believed by faith the gospel message. That Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom we're all chief. We need salvation. That's salvation. That is silver being added to Paul's account. Then look at verse 14. For ye brethren became what? What's another name for a disciple again? A follower. Ye became... There's... Verse 13, evangelism. Verse 14, discipleship. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. Oh, almost forgot that one. This whole thing about making disciples, you realize it's what Jesus did? John 3.22, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. That's why verse 14 tipped me off that I forgot to do this slide. They were in Judea. Christ was in Judea. And there he tarried with them. He spent time with them. He invested his life into them and baptized them, which means they received the message of Christ. They received the gospel message. And then the very next chapter, verse 1, where Jesus Christ has an interesting conversation with a woman at a well. Before that, though, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus, what? made and baptized more disciples than John. Jesus was a disciple maker, not a disciple assigner. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made disciples. We got to be in the disciple making business. Here, they were followers of God in Judea, probably because Jesus was making disciples some 30 years before them. For ye have also suffered like things of your own countrymen. Now, jump down to verse 19. People are like precious stones. Making disciples like precious stones. Verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? You can read Zechariah 9.16 at your own time where he says that precious stones are like people. But who were the Thessalonians? Who were the, sorry, Thessalonians? They were disciples. They were made disciples by Paul and all of the other missionaries. They spent time with them. They invested their lives into them. And as a result, this gold, this silver, this precious stones, as we saw in Revelation 4, they're all molded together to make crowns that you and I, just like the 4 and 20 elders, will one day cast before the Lord and say, this is how much you were worth to me except for those of you who might have nothing on that day. Because since the day you got saved, you've not been jumping into the work. We have to evaluate our work in light of the judgment seat of Christ. So if we're talking about discipleship and making disciples, 
How many precious stones you got? Have you worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ to the extent where he tells you, I want you to go and talk to that person at lunch? And then when you went and shared your faith and led them to Christ, have you made a disciple out of them where they're now following Christ? Isn't it kind of funny how these things, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, and what they mean, it kind of reflects the four things above that we are to set our sights and our affections on? That's it. That really, tonight's message, that's the Christian life. That's it. Everything else, everything else falls into one of these categories somehow. Everything else. Nothing new is under the sun. Because here's the thing. Turn over to Revelation 19. We must make ourselves ready for our wedding day. What do I mean by that? We well, see in Ephesians chapter 5, you and I, Christian, for those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, been born again, you and I are called the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. And a bride is eagerly looking forward to her wedding day. So likewise, how about you, Christian? Are you looking forward to the day you're going to see Christ? Because here's what it says here in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. The marriage of the Lamb, when we're married with Christ, it happens at the end. At the end of everything, the end of the Bible, the end of what God does when He goes through all of His wrath upon this planet after you and I are already in heaven. That's when the marriage supper takes place. And look how verse 7 ends. And His wife hath, past tense, made, past tense, herself ready. You know how the, the bride makes herself ready? Because at the judgment seat of Christ where she's awarded gold, silver, precious stones that then formulate a crown also as part of her reward, not just her crowns, but she gets new garb. I'm not going to say drip. She gets new clothing. <laughs> Shut it, Andy. She gets a new garment as a part of that. And look what it is in verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen clean and white because she's undefiled from the world. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The Bible says that everyone who is a Christian is a saint. You don't have to do anything special to become a saint. Nope. The Bible says if you are born again, you're a saint of God. And as we saw earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Salvation, going to heaven for all of eternity. It has nothing to do with our righteousness. More on that in a second. But it has everything to do with His righteousness and what He has done. So this righteousness to the saints, people who are already trusted Christ as Savior, these are the works we do afterwards. You only get this garment based upon how well you've set your affection on things above and how well you have made disciples because of your love and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would say discipleship and the bigger picture 
is vastly important. Far more than just, hey, did you fill in your blanks? Do you have your memory verse? Awesome. Okay, you're a disciple now. If anything, I want this four-week class to just break all of us of that because that's not what discipleship is. You see, the last bullet point there, our wedding garment, it's a reward for doing what we know is right when we get the proper vision or sight picture. And you can't have a proper sight picture if you don't align your sights to begin with. Romans 6.13 says that we are to yield our members, that's our life, our body, as instruments of righteousness unto God. And there's an interesting comparison in the book of Psalms where it talks about this bride. We're wrapping up here, don't worry. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Why? Because this bride in Psalm 45, she kept her sights on things above and not on the earth. She was not a friend of the world, but she humbled herself. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. More on that in a second. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. So it's here in verses 13 and 14, we see there's two garments. There's gold and then there's the needlework or the fine linen as we just read in <coughs> Revelation 19. It's our righteousness. It's the works we do after becoming a Christian, after getting saved, that gets us the raiment the white, clean, purified linen. I don't know about you. I don't want to go to any wedding where the person is naked. Why? <laughs> Great question. Don't have time to answer it, though. Do you realize that the Bible actually goes through? We don't have time to look at it. The Bible goes through and talks about how you guys ever see old-timey pictures or movies or movies that are set back in like the colonial era and someone's in like a nightgown garb from like head to toe, but even still, she didn't want her to see, oh, don't see me in this, because that was inappropriate. That was seen as equal with being naked. It's the same thing here. You need a cloak, the needlework, the, the fine linen of Revelation 19 on top of the wrought gold. And I'm going to get to that in a second here. But here's the thing. Christian, if you're in here today and you're genuinely saved, you have the clothing of rock gold because it's Christ's righteousness covering you. But if you don't have the needlework of the fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints after salvation, you're going to be at your wedding day naked. And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of God. I wanted to flip back to Revelation chapter 3 and show you guys that you know how Jesus Christ describes the time of the church that we're living in right now? That so many people think that they're rich, and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but really they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Verses 17 and 18 of Revelation chapter 3, read it later on. You'll find that Jesus Christ is giving us a picture right now saying that the biggest problem with Christians today is that 
They don't have their affection set on things above. Gold, the person of God, the word of God. Uh, Silver, taking the word of God to the people of God. Precious stones, making disciples so that there are more people of God being ministered to at the throne of God. The four things above, the three things that combine for a crown are all tied together. And in Revelation 3, Jesus Christ is telling us that's what the church is missing sight of the most. They're not worshiping the Lord. They're not redeeming people with the blood of Christ. And they're not seeing disciples made. Is that you? If it is, realign your sights and get a proper sight picture. Uh, You can pack up two more minutes. The message is over. You can close your Bibles. The message is over. But I could I, just give me two more minutes and we're gone. Yeah, it's real late, and yes, we are over. But tonight I couldn't get around this because it's just right there. I have been hammering it all night long. As we saw, the righteous of the saints. That's for Christians, and that's how you get the fine linen. However, if you are in here tonight and you have never came to a point in your life where you realized you were a sinner in need of a Savior, and you believed that Jesus Christ came to this planet, died on the cross for your sins, and rose again from the grave, and you've not called upon Him to save you, do you realize that right now you have no garbs? You don't even have a ticket to the wedding day. You see, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6 that we are all as an unclean thing. You are wearing something, and here's what you're wearing. All our righteousnesses, our good works are as filthy rags. Anybody here want to show up to a wedding completely covered in just dirt head to toe? Ripped shirts? Holes in your jeans? No. But the Bible says that's us right now. If you're in here and you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, you do have clothing on, but it's filthy rags. And if you're in here thinking my good works, being a good person will get me into heaven, that's not the case. But God did something, as we've seen clearly tonight. He sent His Son, who was sinless, and in the most unfair trade ever, took our sin and gave us His righteousness so that we can be clothed in His righteousness. You need His righteousness in order to have a ticket to the wedding. Because Philippians 3.9 says, Being found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. You have filthy rags as your garment. You need a change of clothing. You need a change of clothing. And it can only be His righteousness that you then receive by faith. You have to trust it. You have to believe with all your heart that God hath sent His Son to pay the price for your sins and you call upon Him to save you. It's just that simple. And then you have your ticket to the wedding. Romans 4, 5. To him that worketh not. Stop trusting in being a good person. Stop trusting your church attendance. I was baptized when I was a kid. Whatever, you name it. You have to stop trusting on that and believe on Him that justifieth the ungodly. When you believe by faith, Your faith is counted for righteousness because it's not yours. It's His that He gave you. That is what the Bible says is your ticket to heaven. That is what the Bible says is what salvation is.
And then when you come to that point, and you can do that right here tonight, when you come to that point, now you can fulfill your purpose of doing good works for him by having your sights aligned on things above, not on the earth, and by doing the work of the Lord. That is the most important thing. Forget everything else I said earlier tonight. If you're in here and you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, this is the only thing that matters to you. This is the only thing. You are not guaranteed a ride home tonight. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. The only thing that matters is what have you done with Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads? Lord, I know it went long tonight, but I couldn't, I could not give this message and everything we talked about and not give this opportunity right now. So Lord, I'm going to ask if there's anyone in here who needs to be saved, will they please talk with someone? Will they talk with the person that invited them? Will they talk with me? Will they talk with one of the other leaders? Or they can just do it from the quiet of their seat right now. It's a prayer of faith, as we saw, not a work. It's a simple prayer of faith that just says, God, I'm a sinner. You died on the cross and you rose again from the grave all because you love me. I trust you. I'm calling upon you to save me. And it's as simple as that, folks. It is as simple as that. If you're in here today and you need to do that and pray that prayer right now but please tell somebody afterwards we're here to help you and we want to help you lord i do thank you again for this group thank you for their patience tonight and i pray that they wouldn't forget these things i pray that it wouldn't just fall on deaf ears i pray it would not be something that they forget seven days from now this is probably the most important message you've ever had me teach on and really preach on God, do something. Let these seeds not be robbed of any fowls of the air. Let these seeds go deep into good soil. In Jesus' name, amen.